know, there's been a tradition in church history over the ages, at least church history, the churches I grew up in, there was a tradition we would have a Thanksgiving service with a traditional meal, turkey, dressing, all that, all those type of things. And, and before we actually had dinner together, we would stand and, and we would praise God, we would give Him thanks for something that we would like to be thankful for in life and for what the Lord has done for us. And I like to think of a disciple of Jesus exercising this discipline of giving thanks every day in their life and not just ascribed to a day that we call Thanksgiving. That every day in our life is a day that we give thanks to God, no matter the hardships, no matter how hard life is. And life can be hard sometimes, but God is always good. And in light of giving thanks, and in light of today's message, I want to thank the Lord for a place that we can, that we can come and worship, and a place that we can live with we, when we are, are free without, free of fear and free of persecution. We can come freely in this place and worship God freely. And the more that I think about the freedoms that we have in Jesus, the more I also think about the neglect over church history, the neglect of our missional responsibilities. I almost, it might sound a bit weird, maybe even morbid, but I almost cry out sometimes for a little persecution. And I say, well, preach, what are you talking about, persecution? Sometimes I cry out for a little pressure, a little tension. Persecution to put us on the path of appreciation. Put us on the path of living out what Jesus actually called us to do, which is make disciples. Now, we have become, as a church culture, we have become living in the status quo. We have become people who go through the life without working for the kingdom of Christ. We have come people that are sometimes narcissistic in our, our understanding of the Great Commission. We have become divided. And so if, I've kind of cleaned that up a little bit. I've kind of doctored that up a little bit. The church culture as a whole in regards to the local church, I could, I could easily say it in this way. We've become complacent, lazy, self-absorbed, and divided. And sometimes the best remedy for these is that the Lord apply a little pressure. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Sometimes we need a little pressure to get us back on track. And in light of today's message, I think of persecution. And if I put a title to this sermon, it would be something to the effect, Scarred for Christ. And the Apostle Paul would bear the marks of persecution, being stoned almost to death. In the light of today's message, which will touch upon persecution, not only persecution, but also the place that the church has when there's a man down. LifeWay Research conducted a study on the amount of Christ followers today that are facing hardship and persecution. And as I read these results, they were, 
they were rather surprising. Last year, more Christians were detained or killed for their faith and attacked. Churches were attacked or, or closed than the, than the year before. In the past year, there were 360 million Christians. That's one in seven believers around the world that suffered significant persecution for their faith. Just in 2021, there was an average of more than 16 believers that were killed for following Jesus. And yet, when it rains around here, people stay home. Close to 6,000 total martyrs. And in 2021, there was a 24% increase in Christians killed for their faith. How many Americans do you know have been killed for their faith in this country? You know what, out of all of these numbers, you know what country is not included in those numbers? America. Why is that? Well, because there are no Christians being martyred for their faith in Jesus. There isn't any officials in our great country. Our country is still, is still a great country by the way, with its flaws, yes. But there's no one in our government now who is saying, go get them, boys. Go get them. Drag them out of their home and kill them because they believe in Jesus. Now, I believe that the church as a whole, our nation as a whole, is under the wrath of a holy and righteous God. I believe that. But we still have the freedom to worship. Now, one would think, armed with that information that I just shared with you, America, American believers and followers of Jesus would be the most evangelical, would be the most evangelistic, would be the most Jesus-sharing people that you know. But that's not the case. In fact, if American followers of Jesus were to share their faith as Jesus prescribed them and commanded them to do in the Great Commission, we would probably see an influx of persecution pressed in on the church. If American followers of Jesus were sharing their faith with their neighbors, with the ones across the field, the ones across town, their grocers or their people who work in retail, or you know, people you come in contact with daily, if we were sharing our faith as commanded by Jesus, we would certainly see an influx in this persecution and pressed in on the church. So as a point of reference, here are top 10 nations uh, in the world today that, where it's very, very difficult to, to follow Jesus. You see Afghanistan and you see India. Uh, number one, Afghanistan. Number 10 is India. You would be very surprised out of this top 10, the hits, the top 10 most difficult places to serve Jesus that the churches there, the people, the following, followers of Christ are flourishing. Flourishing. Even in light of being pressed. So yeah, a little pressure, a little tension, I think would wake us up out of our slumber. Now in today's sermon, we're going to see persecution from the eyes of the evangelist Luke. As he describes Paul in Lystra and what happens there. So with that introduction... I'm going to ask you, if you will, let's stand as we read God's Word. I think God's Word certainly has something for us to hear this morning. 
from God's Word, beginning at verse 19, chapter 14, the book of Acts. God's Word says, The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and through Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And there they remained no little time with the disciples. Father, we ask you that you would Bless this time in your word. You've already, even in these few words, you've, you have rattled us a bit. You've rattled me, Father. You've rattled us a bit. You have piqued our interest, Lord, by your word. And so, Father, I pray that you will continue to captivate our mind and captivate our heart today by your Holy Spirit. You will continue, God, to draw us into yourself. Help us, God, to have ears, as John wrote to the to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Father, we also implore of you, let this church hear what the Spirit says. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last time we saw Paul and Barnabas, they were at Lystra. And by the way, it's heavily influenced. It's a heavily Greek-influenced country. It's what you would call Hellenistic. It is greatly influenced from the language, from the commerce, it is Hellenistic in its, in, its, in its culture. And Paul is preaching and he sees this crippled man who is setting, he's setting open air and he's sitting, there isn't a, there isn't a synagogue, there, isn't, there might be a marketplace, but he's, he's sitting uh, outside maybe where they do commerce or business and he's just sitting there. He was born without the ability to walk, but he was engaged with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was and no doubt was sharing Jesus. And this man is engaged. He's, I mean, he is engaged. He is weighing in on the words. And the Apostle Paul sees this man and he notes that this man has faith. And Paul says to the crippled man to rise up and walk. And the crippled man was healed. He, his muscles were instantaneously built. He jumped up and, and this man was healed. And the townspeople looked at Paul and Barnabas and they had thought that Paul and Barnabas were... Zeus and Hermes incarnate. They thought that these two Greek gods had come down and, and robed themselves in the appearance of a human being and had navigated through Paul and Barnabas. And they brought out sacrifices to them. And Paul realized what was happening. And once Paul realized what they were doing in, in praising them as Hermes and, and Zeus, he, he said, what are you doing? We're normal men just like you. We are normal human beings. And so Paul begins to try to divert their attention away from adoring Zeus and Hermes 
to worshiping and adoring the God over all of creation. And no doubt Paul was trying to divert their attention to Jesus. No doubt if Paul was able to preach a robust gospel to them, he would have given them a full gospel account from creation to the birth of Jesus to his glorious resurrection. But we find that Paul was unable to give this robust gospel account because in verse 18, it says, even with the words that Paul was sharing, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. No matter what Paul and Barnabas said, they were still bringing out these sacrifices, still adoring them as if they were Zeus and Hermes. They were faithful to the gospel. Paul was faithful to preach, but the people didn't have the ears to hear or the eyes to see. And so this picks up in our narrative today. And if there was a couple of things I would like to share with you today, a couple of truths that I see in these few verses. Number one, it would be in light of adversity, in light of hardship, in light of going through difficult times, encourage one another. Encourage one another. And it seems as the acts of the apostles were gaining momentum, Again, I'll show a map later on, but north, south, east, and west, the gospel of, of Jesus is, is spreading to the known world. It is, it is going to the uttermost parts of the world, and, and it, is, it is gaining. Two places that Paul and Barnabas had preached already was Antioch and Iconium. Some believers were gained there as God continued to add to his church daily. But as Believers were gained. There were also enemies that were realized. And some of these enemies that were realized come in the form of the Jewish people in Antioch and Iconium. No doubt there are commentators that would say that these Jews that are mentioned in verse 19 had followed Paul and Barnabas very closely on the road that they were traveling, followed very closely behind and followed Paul and Barnabas into Lystra. The Bible says that they had, persecuted, or they had persuaded the crowd, they had poisoned the mind of the crowd, and they raised up stones, and they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They thought that Paul had succumbed to the wounds of being stoned. And I can't imagine what the Apostle Paul was, was going through mentally and physically. I can't imagine what Paul endured in this episode but it is obvious the message that they preached of Jesus was gaining ground. It was gaining popularity, this risen Christ, this, this Messiah. It changed their lives. The religious leaders, the Jews in those cities did not take too kindly from this, to this. In fact, they were willing to travel 100 to 110 miles from Antioch to stifle out and try to snuff out the message. And by the way, that hasn't changed today. The enemy of Christianity, the enemy of the message of the gospel will always try to stifle out this message. Enemies of Christ will always be on a mission to destroy a movement of Christ. Will always try to snuff out the truth of the gospel message. That hasn't changed since Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra and it hasn't changed from then to today. And so they followed close. They had persuaded the crowds of the apostles, quote, unquote, blasphemy. And they are crafty enough to convince them to cast stones at Paul in order to kill, to kill him. 
And I guess the commands amongst the Jews, amongst the Hebrews here to do not kill, did not register. In fact, this town, as I mentioned earlier, is Hellenistic, full of Jewish, I mean, full of Greek-speaking Greek people. And so they, it didn't register with the Jews there. They didn't think much of getting the, Jew, the Gentile to do their dirty work for them, to cast the stone and to kill them, which if you rewind to the gospel accounts of Jesus and the persecution of Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders did the same thing there. They got the Romans to do the dirty work for them. And so I guess do not kill did not register with them as they persuaded the crowd and the people to throw stones at, at Paul. They drug him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They drug him out as if he was this unclean piece of trash to be separated from the people who are right with God. Imagine the mental and the physical strain and the stress that Paul endured. And I say that he endured these scars because he himself reflects upon them. Paul catalogs these scars. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, Paul catalogs the many things that he had gone through for the cause of the gospel. And in verse 25 of chapter 11, Paul says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's this occasion. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And in all of this cataloging, left outside the city to die, stoned, almost beaten to death. In all of this, Paul then says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why? It is when we are weak that he is strong. Even John the baptizer said these words that he must decrease in order that the spotless lamb of God could increase. So we don't boast in the things that we have done, we boast in Christ. So this is what Paul is saying, I was stoned not to boast in, these, in this stoning, but I, I boast in my own weakness so that when we are weak, he is strong. When we are humbled, he is elevated. The physical and mental strain lasts a lifetime, but we see from the life of the Apostle Paul, or really the Apostles themselves, that we move on anyways. Even if we are beaten, if we, even if we are stoned, even if someone says a cross word to us about our faith in Jesus, we move on. But in this moving on, I submit to you, even in all of that, even in being stoned, beaten, persecuted, even if somebody persecutes you verbally, talks down to you because of your faith, ridicules you for your faith, scoffs at you because of your faith, even in all of this, we need our community of believers. We need our community of believers. We need one another. Even in this moment of near-death experience for Paul, now, I don't mean that Paul was beaten and he had his out-of-body experience and he saw a vision of heaven or anything like that. In this near-death experience, I mean he almost died, no doubt, because of this stoning. Even in this near-death experience, the Bible says in verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, he entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. In spite of being knocked unconscious, they picked up and they traveled a few hours to Derby, which may be 20 miles for them, 
to preach there. They knocked the dust off and moved on seeking fertile ground to plant gospel seeds. Something very familiar happened also in the gospel accounts, in Mark particularly, where Jesus sent out the disciples. He sent them out by twos. Remember that? He sent the disciples out by in twos to preach the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus, of course, is the kingdom that has come. He is Messiah who has come. And, and they were sent out by twos to preach. And he said, well, if one does not receive you, knock the dust off as a testimony, a witness against them, and move on. Go on your way. Move up the street. Go on your way. So they knocked the dust off, moved on, seek where they might find fertile ground to plant good gospel seed. And I submit to you that this cannot be done without support from one another. This cannot be done in isolation. You cannot make disciples. You cannot make disciples in a vacuum. God did not design disciple-making. God did not design the Great Commission to be done in a vacuum or in isolation. We need our church family every step of the way. You need church family for support. You need your church family to help you grow in your faith. You need church family for a fellowship as we gather around the name of Jesus. You cannot make disciples. It is impossible to make disciples in a vacuum or in isolation. Now, how do we see this in the text? I want you to notice the actions of the disciples here. They gathered about Paul as he was knocked out flat. This is a picture of gospel community. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, as they gathered together all their resources. This is a picture of gospel community. I, I have noticed as I studied these verses, and verse 20 in particular, as I studied these verses and I consulted a few resources, I noticed that very few people stopped to highlight this community of believers gathered about Paul. Most of the time, they want to talk about Paul's faithful witness. He is a faithful witness. They'll talk about how he was stoned, how he got up, how he went to Derbe and preached, how he came back, how he even circled back. But there are many, many commentators, many people who gloss over this very important fact that the disciples gathered about the Apostle Paul. In fact, the International Standard Bible translates this as the disciples formed a circle about him. Why did this community of believers form a circle around the Apostle Paul? Well, it speaks of their protecting him. It speaks, I no doubt, they prayed over him. They were looking out over the Apostle Paul as a community of believers. Now, see, the society that we live in today will say that it is every man for himself. I believe in some way that the church, the body of Christ, is in a corporate and an existential crisis. Where it is no longer, let's gather and rally around the fallen. It is every man for himself. This mentality has seeped into the lifeblood of the church and has even seeped into the leadership of many of our churches today. But it's not so for these disciples. They give us a picture, a beautiful picture of praying, protecting. When a man is down, they swoop in to minister. When a man is down, they invest in his livelihood. I wonder how many of our brothers and sisters are laid out spiritually who are suffering through a spiritual crisis and we have abandoned them where they lay. 
And there are people that we know who were one time serving the Lord vibrantly in this church, but now they are laid out somewhere in spiritual decay. And instead of forming a circle around them, we have left them through their own spiritual and downward spiral. Now, I don't know if you are a note taker. I don't know if you open your bulletin and see the sermon note part in there. But listen, if you are, if you are writing notes down in there today, I challenge you, take that piece of, of paper on that bulletin and those lines and write down some names of some people who you might be considered to be laid out somewhere in spiritual decay. Someone who might be struggling. Someone that you haven't seen in a long time. Somebody who has made this exodus away from fellowship of the church body. And it is our responsibility in a way to gather around them. We have to in some way, in some way, we need to circle up and round about these folks. Who among us would, would we consider a man or a woman who is laid out? Now, Paul was not spiritually laid out, okay? Paul was not in spiritual, spiritual decay. But my focus is on the circle of people who gathered around to see that Paul was fit to stand and preach again. Who among us would go? Who among us would, would form a, a spiritual task force in a way, and we can call it, Truth and Love Task Force. Southern Baptists like to form task force. Let's form one. Who would, who would be in that group? Who would say, I'll be in that group. I'll go to my neighbor and I'll say, listen, brother, where have you been for the past year and a half? Where have you been? What's been going on? Who among us would consider a man or woman down? And as we consider who they are, we would go and form a gospel community around them and invest in their spiritual recovery. You might say, no, I don't want to meddle in their life. Well, there's a difference between meddling and investing in their spiritual recovery, doing it out of love and concern. Is there a man down? Is there a man down? Is there, is there, is there a woman down? Is there, is there someone who's laid out? We need to form around them. The Bible says, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel in that city, they had made disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So after making converts and disciples amongst the people at Derbe, they returned to the cities who had persecuted them and cast stones at them. The very cities that ran, they ran out. They were run out of these towns and now they are circling back. Why? Because even in immense persecution, some became believers of Jesus, disciples of Christ. And just because a stone of persecution was cast, this is no reason to give up on the wayward or far from God. This is no reason to give up on those disciples who have come to faith. See, Paul was... Roman, a Roman citizen as well as Jewish. So he had dual citizenship. But this would not matter in one way, shape, or form to this mob who almost stoned him to death. Paul and company did not hesitate to return to those cities who had run him off. See, see, Paul had been stoned in Lystra. He'd been threatened in Iconium. He'd been expelled in Antioch and yet returned to encourage the believers in those cities. We need those kind of encouragers today in the church who will not only circle back around to protect and to form circle around, but will encourage one another to continue in their faith, even, even in bearing the scars of stone-laden persecution. 
Now in these cities, Iconium and Antioch and Derbe, there were people who come from paganism, who were once pagan, who are now believers in Christ. They're babes in Christ. I mean, they're new believers. They were persecuted. They had broken family and communal ties because of their new faith in Jesus, even though they were building new ones, a new community. And they greatly needed encouragement if they were going to hold on and hold out. So I want us to be frank again for a moment. Almost said, let's be real, but hopefully we've been real this whole time. But to be frank and upfront, encouragement, and they encourage one another. Encouragement comes in many shapes and forms. Sometimes encouragement comes from not beating around the bush. Sometimes encouragement comes from being upfront. And we could use the terminology being real one with one with another. And I'll be the first to tell you that some of the most cutthroat, divisive actions that I have ever seen have come within the walls of a local church. Now, was that encouraging? Well, it's not encouraging in those very acts. It's not encouraging when there's division. There's, it's not encouraging when, when there are undermining or when there is power struggles in any local church. It, those things are not encouraging at all. But what is encouraging in that is to know that someone has the courage to be real and upfront about the life of the church, even though it is not encouraging about what is going on. It is encouraging to know that there are people who will stand up and speak out and will speak truth and not let things go. See, one thing that I will always tell a person when they want to join the fellowship here at this local church, one thing that I will always tell them is this. I want you to hear me on this. There will be times when someone will make you mad. There will be times when somebody will make you angry in this church. There will be times when there will be things that will not go the way that you might think. And that does happen. But I would also say in the same breath and in the same sentence, don't give up on your church family. Don't give up on your church family. There are too many times where people will get upset at some little thing that happened, they'll pack their bags and they'll stay home and never turn, return to church. What do we do in those cases? What do we do? You know what we do? We teach through it as a church family. Family sticks together, don't they? Family don't abandon one another. Family sticks together. So we teach through it. We live through it together as, as a movement of God, as a family. We learn through it. We stay together. We stick together. We press through it. And as we stick together as a church family, as we work through it together, that is encouraging. As hard as it might be to hear sometimes, it is encouraging to move through it. So now the apostles are encouraging now, Paul and Peter, I mean, you read the letter account, you read the book of James, and they were up and in your face. Read the book of James, up and in your face. 
So now they delegate roles. They had appointed elders from every church. They prayed, they fasted together, and they committed to them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now notice that they did not elect these elders haphazardly. They prayed and they fasted together over it. They found qualified men and they placed them in position to lead these local churches and then they moved on. And then they moved on. They delegated and they trusted these faithful elders and people to, to lead the house of the Lord effectively. And not only did they encourage one another, but then they also set an example, beginning at verse 24, to reflect on all that God has done. How do we encourage one another? How do I encourage the man who is down? How would I encourage the woman that is down spiritually or in spiritual decay? Well, we reflect on all that God has done. And we might begin at the cross of Christ. We might begin at the gospel. We might begin at the resurrection. No matter what we do, we reflect on what God has done and that becomes a word of encouragement to many folks who are down and out now we just came off a day of thanksgiving and i hope that your day was filled with this type of reflection rather than what was on sale during black friday and if you were one of the ones who were camped out front of best buy or walmart or wherever it was at i hope that even in that line you reflected on the goodness of god even as you were thinking about that new flat screen television, that you were reflecting on the goodness of God as you were also reflecting on those sales. Verse 24 says that the apostles, they, they passed through Poseidon, they come to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word of God in Perga, they went to Atalia, and from there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now, here's a map of their travels right here, just a, a, a very short and really concise map. The two black circles you'll see there are where they were at. They were in Pamphylia and Perga, pre preached the word in Pisadia, and you'll see this area. They traveled back up to, Anti back up to Antioch, and they traveled here. As you can see, they traveled west toward Perga. They sailed again to Antioch, probably through an inlet or or canal um, that crossed from Perga, Antalya, to the port of Perga, 16 miles down to the capital of Pamphylia to find a ship in Antioch in Syria, probably some port that they could sail back up to Antioch. And no doubt, Paul in these travels was still bearing the scars of persecution, still bearing the scars of being almost stoned to death. He might have even had a scab or two. The Bible doesn't tell that, so we infer a few things here. He was no doubt still bearing the scars of persecution, almost being stoned to death. The Bible says of utmost importance, and we find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, the importance and the command of gathering together. It is also found in verse 27. This is what Paul did. What did Paul do? He arrived and he gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Verse 28, we could also translate it in the ISV, says they spent a long time with the disciples there. So here's an amazing recollection of events that gives glory to Jesus and demonstrates the power of the gospel to change people's lives. The apostles themselves are an example of the power of the gospel. How the gospel will change your worldview, it will change the way you think. It will change your travels, as we've seen on that map. It will change them north, south, east, and west. It will send you to share the good news with the lost and dying world. 
And so, another example of assembling the church and the priority that it takes in our lives, we should be putting off everything else in order to assemble together. Not letting everything else come into the prime activities of our day or weekend. Gathering together takes precedence. And this is where we gain encouragement. This is where we gain strength. Now, the word that you might see there is they declared. The word for declared, you might have a King James Version. The King James Version, Version uses this word rehearsed. You may have that in your Bible, rehearsed or declared. There was so much to share with the church, and it was so detailed and thorough that it almost become rehearsed. Not in some superficial fake way, but in order to catalog all that God was doing, they had to put it in order and to somehow rehearse. It wasn't just mere regurgitation of what God was doing. It was rehearsed with spiritual intent. It had intent of growing the church. So it was rehearsed. It was so much to share. It was so detailed. It has its root. In fact, this word for declared or rehearsed, it has its root word in the word that we use in the Greek for evangelism. And it denotes giving a detailed recollection of all the Lord was doing to draw the Gentile believers to himself and how disciples are being made and how God is opening many doors. Now, I suspect Paul being stoned and having the visible scars of persecution, I suppose that him being stoned and left out the city was an open door somewhere for the good news as Paul is encouraging. As you're being persecuted, keep the faith. As you're being persecuted, keep at it. And yet he bears the scars and maybe even the marks on his head of being persecuted. And now he is encouraging them. He's encouraging them to press on and keep the faith. See, what was meant for evil, God used for good. We rewind all the way back to Joseph. We rewind into Genesis, in the narrative of Joseph. and His brother sold him into slavery. Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And what the enemy thinks, that when he thinks he has closed the door on the gospel, which he really doesn't, God opens another door and another door and another door, and another door. So what did the apostles rehearse in the ears of the church? What did they declare? Well, they declared all that God had done. They didn't go on about the things that they have done themselves. We walked this many miles, my legs are sore. No. They didn't talk about the things that they'd done in their own efforts and in their own power. And Paul was a... Paul was known as a persuasive speaker. He was a persuasive preacher, and yet he didn't go on about the power of his persuasion. It wasn't how great the sermons that were, that were preached. It wasn't how many people filled the pews. It wasn't about the overfilling of the church. You know, I heard somebody talk about uh, how the church is growing in some regard, and there's a lot of people coming coming now. And I submit to you that 90, 95% of our churches in our area are not, are, are not involved in what we call organic church growth. 
90 to 95%, if not, if not a higher number, of church quote-unquote growth that we find today is strictly from church hopping. So what does that tell you about the church culture we live in? If you don't like what's going on, we'll shop for the next one. No matter how good the preaching is or the teacher one might think it is, no matter how good that might seem to somebody or how good the community might see, seem. See, they didn't go on about the applause they received. They didn't talk about the scars that they had other than being able to suffer for Christ in order for the good news to spread. No matter how good the teacher might be or the preacher might be, the sermon might be, the, the music might be, the music is energetic, it's charismatic, it's, uh, it's, it's lively, it's open, it's, it's well put together. No matter how all those things fit together, no matter how good the preacher might, you might think is and the sermon, no matter how, how articulate they might be, it is God who opens the heart of the, the heart and the mind. It is God who opens up. It is God that helps us to understand what is being said. Yes, God does open the mouth of the proclaimer, the teacher. And yes, God opens the ears. And yes, God opens the heart. And in the words of scholar Kay Garrick, he even opens the doors of heaven and speaks through his holy written word. But it is God that opens the heart and mind. And he does so here. So in closing, I'll leave you with these two reminders. In light of adversity, encourage one another. The man that is down, the woman that is down, rally around them. Let's rally around them. The pastors can't do it by themselves. We need a, we need a task force, a Piney Grove Truth and Love task force, that we will go out, truth and love, and rally around these people. In light of adversity, in light of hardship, when a man is down, we encourage one another. And how do we encourage one another? We reflect on all that God has done. From the creation of this universe, to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, to His death on the cross, His substitutionary atonement on the cross, and to His glorious resurrection. And then encourage one another that He is indeed returning one day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.